This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, November 5th, 2021, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. This week, I am joined by members of the Homeland Security Investigations, Human Rights Violators, and War Crime Center. Today, we will give you an overview of the center, their investigative process, and their work to combat crimes against women, both at home and abroad. Let me start by introducing our panel of guests. Joining us, I have HSI Program Manager, Suzanne Priest, HSI Section Chief, Lisa Frazier, and Associate Legal Advisor, Catherine Finley. A quick content warning for our listeners, we will be discussing serious human rights violations, including torture, World War II, war crimes, gender-based violence, and misconduct. Resources will be included in the description of this program. Please seek assistance if needed. Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that FedTalk is brought to you by Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program is sponsored by the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, insured by John Hancock Life and Health Insurance Company under a group long-term care insurance policy, and is administered by Long-Term Care Partners. To learn more, visit them at www.ltcfeds.com today. Catherine, Lisa, Suzanne, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I'm really interested in this conversation. Uh, It's actually a little bit of a follow-up to the show we did from the WIFL conference, where Suzanne was actually awarded for her great work with the Human Rights Center specifically. Today, we're going to do a much deeper dive into the center, and I want to kick it off by letting our panel of guests describe exactly what the center does and maybe a little bit about how it was formed. Great. Thanks for having us on the show, Natalia. We're really excited to be here. Um, Well, the Human Rights Violators War Crime Center is a group of federal agencies working together to protect the United States from human rights violators. And when we're talking about human rights violators, what I mean is those people who engage in activities such as war crimes, genocide, torture, extrajudicial killings, the use and recruitment of child soldiers, or female genital mutilation or cutting. Um, Homeland Security Investigations is the investigative arm of the Department of Homeland Security. We lead the Human Rights Violators and War Crimes Center. We work with our partners at the center, including the FBI, Department of Justice, Customs and Border Protection, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, Department of State, and other U.S. government stakeholders invested in ensuring that the United States is not a safe haven for human rights violators and war criminals. So our mission at the Human Rights Violators War Crime Center is really three parts. 
First, to prevent human rights violators who are outside of the United States from entering the United States. Second, to identify, locate, prosecutive eligible and remove human rights, rights violators who are residing inside the United States. And finally, to present those eligible for financial sanctions to sanctioning bodies for consideration. In order to complete its mission, the Human Rights Violators War Crime Center has the staff from various disciplines, including law enforcement such as special agents and officers who specialize in investigations, intelligence analysts and program analysts who conduct research and analysis, attorneys who provide legal perspective, historians who have a broad understanding of the historical context of the conflicts and politics in a region, and all of us are working collectively on the Human Rights Violators War Crime Center mission. It's really incredible to have all these agencies and all these individuals with their different skill sets working together for a common goal on the important and domestic global issue of human rights. Thank you for that great overview. This is really interesting to me because in what you described, those kind of three central missions of the Human Rights Center, it really touches every aspect of human rights violations from prevention to removal to sanction. And I know as we dive deeper into the show, we're gonna talk more about each of those elements and not only how you do them, um, but why you do them and some of the really touching ways that you guys prevent human rights violations right here at home, as well as you know, ensure justice for victims throughout history. The Human Rights Center um, has been around for quite some time. Lisa, can you describe a little bit about its foundation? Sure. Um, so investigating human rights violations and war crimes has been an investigative priority since the mid-1970s when the then um, Immigration and Naturalization Service, the INS, and the Department of Justice um, investigated former Nazis for immigration fraud who entered the United States following the end of World War II. With the creation of DHS in 2003, uh, the work continued as uh, INS and customs, US Customs Special Agents were combined into what is today Homeland Security Investigations. The emphasis on human rights violators and War Crime Center is, it, on modern war crimes that have occurred around the globe. In 2009, uh, ICE Director John Morton approved the creation of the Human Rights Violators and War Crimes Center to bring an interagency whole of government approach to the mission of modern human rights violations and war crimes investigations. This approach um, has launched a productive collaborative effort on behalf of the United States government to combat human rights. And throughout the years, the center has grown with additional personnel and resources, really increasing our effectiveness. Thank you. That's, you know, it's really interesting how over time, these kind of scattered parts of the federal government focused on these issues have really been able to come together. And now you have this one central hub. On this program, we often talk about change happening in silos across the federal government and having one central location where different agencies can come together and collaborate is often a really effective mechanism for ensuring exactly like you said, Lisa, a whole of government approach. You had mentioned, um, you know, some of the history relating to uh, Nazis and ensuring they don't find safe harbor in the United States. Can you talk a little bit more about the types of cases you investigate? Well, I guess it's probably simpler to explain, you know, 
uh, how it all kind of breaks down and works uh, legally, right? So the center investigates the type of laws that people generally associate with human rights, such as genocide, war crimes, torture, the use and recruitment of child soldiers, extrajudicial killings, and female genital mutilation are cutting. But most of those laws didn't come into effect until the 1990s or later. And so they can't be used in many of our criminal prosecutions. So in the past, and even today, oftentimes we investigate individuals who have lied to the U.S. government to gain entry into the United States about their involvement in human rights. It's how, for instance, we can prosecute and remove former Nazis from the United States as the war crimes, genocide, torture laws weren't in effect when the Holocaust occurred. Those lies and misrepresentations are commonplace in these types of cases because if a human rights filer had admitted to participating in, say, genocide, torture, or any of those other substantive human rights violations, they likely would not have been allowed entry into the United States. So essentially, many of our cases, especially the older cases, deal with the concealment of the human rights violation, the lying to the U.S. government officials to gain entry or some sort of status in the United States. Fortunately, there are several avenues for these types of cases, such as criminal, civil, civil and administrative authorities that, that address human rights violations. And when we're talking about human rights investigations, we're talking about conflicts and human rights abuses that have occurred across two centuries in countries all around the world. That's it, what's very interesting to me is, you know, when you talk about the concealment element, uh, I think a lot of people don't really understand how these legal constructs interplay with each other and what was against the law then, what's against the law today. And so it's interesting that you use concealment as a method for gaining access to these individuals um, and being able to actually uh, prosecute them and, if necessary, remove them and some of the other tools in your toolbox uh, for achieving justice. I know we're going to dive a lot more into those different tools in the toolbox um, in our next segment, but we do have to stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are sitting down with members of the Human Rights Violators and War Crime Center to discuss their important work combating human rights issues, both at home and abroad. With me today, we have a program manager, section chief, and associate legal advisor within the center. I want to give each of them a moment to describe their role and how they work as a team in order to take care of their important mission. Lisa, you've been telling us a little bit about the history of the center and the type of work that you investigate. Can you tell me a little bit about your role as section chief? Sure. Uh, well, I'm a Homeland Security Investigation Special Agent. And so, you know, right now I am a section chief. Um, and what I do is I manage a group of senior agents, historians, and program analysts who work on our different teams to help facilitate the cases in our field offices and around the world as well as work with our partners to generate and vet investigative leads. Thanks, Lisa. And Kate, as an associate legal advisor, what does your work look like? 
Uh, so like you mentioned, I am an associate legal advisor to Homeland Security Investigations on the female genital mutilation or our FGM portfolio, as well as our gender-based violence portfolio, which means that I provide support to Suzanne and Lisa with any legal questions that might come up in our investigations. I also support the Human Rights Violator and War Crime Center in our FGM education and outreach activities around the country and sometimes internationally. Thanks, Kate. And I'm really excited uh, to hear more about some of your prevention work. In the second half of our show, we're going to do a spotlight looking specifically at combating crimes against women and female genital mutilation. And so really excited to learn a little bit more about the prevention work that you do and how it impacts the community. Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit about your role within the Human Rights Center? Yeah. Hello, Natalia. It's great to be with you. And thank you for having me back on your show. Uh, so as she said, I'm Suzanne Priest. I'm the program manager for HSI's anti-FGM, uh, the female genital mutilation program and training. I coordinate both domestic and international trainings, develop partnerships both internationally and domestically with our interagency uh, partners, NGOs, and the like. Um, I take in our leads. I send them to the field and assist the special agents as, I, as needed to investigate cases of FGM. I've also, I've, I've been with the Human Rights Violators and War Crime Center since uh, 2016. Wow, that's great. And uh, I'm so excited to dive more into the work that you guys do with partners, not only within other federal agencies, but also across the private sector, the nonprofit sector, to really ensure that your mission is made possible. Looking specifically at the work you guys do, both locating and removing war criminals and preventing those individuals from entering the United States, this seems to make up a significant portion of the work of the Human Rights Center. And it would be helpful to learn a little bit more about that process and what goes into both locating and removing and preventing the entry of human rights violators. So, um, Natalia, like many crimes, we get information from all sorts of places. Uh, open source and the news media are places um, where we get information. Foreign correspondents are oftentimes on the ground in areas where human rights violations are occurring and, you know, they're reporting on those incidents. Uh, we also look at reporting from other international agencies, such as UN reports, and get information from foreign governments. Um, during investigations, sometimes we start out with one suspected human rights violator, but end up identifying more as the cases goes on, as the case goes on. So sometimes, um, and also sometimes this, the public uh, reaches out with a tip and, uh, you know, a victim, for instance, may see their perpetrator in a coffee shop and report it to us, you know, or an another law enforcement agency. Um, but regardless of the source, uh, we take that information and we start gathering evidence just like any other investigation, you know, searching for the truth of what happened uh, then we build our cases by gathering evidence and interviewing victims and witnesses. If the perpetrator is outside of the United States, we work with those agencies that are in involved in allowing people to enter the United States um, to prevent their entry for, you know, as a human rights violator. If the human rights violator is already in the United States, then we work with our law enforcement and our agents and analysts in the field to locate, arrest, and prosecute the human rights violator. Sometimes that means a criminal prosecution or perhaps a civil lit litigation or even an administrative immigration case. 
Um, you know, since 2003, the Human Rights Violators War Crime Center has issued more than 77,000 lookouts for suspected human rights violators from more than 110 countries across the world. And we've prevented over 343 human rights violators and war crime suspects from entering the United States. Uh, so those are, those are some pretty, pretty hefty numbers. Um, also since 2003, the U.S. government has removed 1,070 known or suspected human rights violators from the United States, uh, preventing sanctuary for those who have engaged in war crimes, genocide, torture, or other serious human rights abuses. Wow, looking at your website and hearing those numbers, the just absolute uh, you know, depth of individuals and volume of individuals that you guys are you know, looking out for, that you guys are removing from the United States, that you're stopping from entering the United States, it's incredibly significant. And it is a, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate reminder that these human rights violators are all over the world and they are interested in finding harbor in the United States if possible. And it's really incredible, you know, just 77,000 lookouts since 2003. The volume is just unbelievable. One of the, th the reasons from my perspective that there are so many people for you guys to kind of keep track of is because you both look back in time and forward. We talked a little bit about, uh, you know, having to use things like concealment in order to identify individuals from as far back as World War II um, and prevent them from finding harbor in the United States. Uh, there's also, you know, I've seen on your website removing individuals involved with the Rwandan genocide, with the Dos Eres massacre um, from 1982. There are just so many of these cases throughout time and history. Can you tell us a little bit about how you look back in order to uh, prevent these violators from finding harbor in the United States today? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There's been, you know, conflicts in the past in many regions of the world. Uh, the one that's probably most historically thought about is the Nazis in World War II. Um, but in addition to that, there were other conflicts in Latin America, Rwanda, and Bosnia that are probably also pretty familiar to people. Um, we'll give you a few uh, examples of cases that HSI has worked to give you some context. Um, believe it or not, we just had a, recently had a Nazi case. So, uh, Kate, do you want to talk about the Burger case? So the Human Rights Violator and War Crimes Center, uh, like Lisa just mentioned, was recently involved in a Nazi case, specifically a former Nazi by the name of Friedrich Berger. Uh, Mr. Berger was a German citizen who participated in Nazi-sponsored persecution while serving in 1945 as an armed guard of concentration camp prisoners. And we wanted to highlight this case, Natalia, with listeners today, just because it's a true demonstration of the steadfast dedication of the center's work to pursue justice and ensure accountability for someone who participated in one of history's greatest atrocities, no matter how long it takes. And this case is a really important reminder as well that the United States will not serve as a safe haven for human rights violators and war criminals. Um, it also ensures uh, accountability and justice for survivors who are still around, for family members of survivors and in memory of those who, who were lost during that time. So um, in this case that we wanted to share with you today, uh, Mr. Berger, he was in immigration court proceedings recently 
where the immigration judge learned that he had served at a camp near Meppen, Germany, and that the prisoners there included Jews, Poles, Russians, Danes, Dutch, Latvians, French, Italians, and political opponents of the Nazis. The largest group of prisoners there were Russians, Dutch, and Polish civilians. And after a two-day trial last year in February 2020, the presiding immigration judge issued an opinion finding that Meppen prisoners were held during the winter of 1945 in atrocious conditions and were exploited for outdoor forced labor, working to the point of exhaustion and death. The court further found, and Berger admitted, that he guarded prisoners to prevent them from escaping during their dawn to dusk workday on their way to work sites and on their way back to the SS-run subcamp in the evening. Um, at the end of March 1945, so just as the war was coming to an end, Allied forces advanced, the Nazis actually abandoned Meppen. And the court, the immigration court judge, and we're talking decades and decades later where we're hearing this story, uh, found that Berger helped guard the prisoners during their forcible evacuation to the Nenegame main camp, a nearly two-week trip under inhumane conditions, which unfortunately claimed the lives of some 70 prisoners. Um, the decision from the immigration court judge also cited Berger's admission that he had never requested a transfer from concentration camp guard service and that he continues to receive a pension from Germany-based um, funds on his employment in Germany, uh, indicating his wartime service. And so Mr. Berger was removed from the U.S. Um, in, in 2021. So just to highlight for listeners that if you can believe it, we, we still have had moments in recent history of, of going through accountability and, and justice efforts from decades and decades ago. Uh, with that, I can actually turn it back over to Lisa to talk to us about another recent case example from the center, not from World War II, but from the latter part of the 20th century, the Guatemalan Civil War. Thanks, Kate. Um, in the case of uh, Jose Ortiz Morales, uh, he was a former member of uh, an elite Guatemalan army unit known as the Caibiles. Um, Ortiz Morales allegedly was among some 20 Caibiles who went to the remote Guatemalan village of Las Dos Aires in search of insurgents responsible for an ambush of an army convoy. Uh, the insurgents uh, made off with some military rifles. Um, so the Caibiles uh, arrive in the village in the middle of the night looking for these weapons and whoever had uh, participated in the ambush. And uh, they began searching the homes for the missing weapons, uh, forcing, forcing residents out, out of their homes to interrogate them. Uh, no military rifles were recovered. Uh, the Kaibilis uh, proceeded to systematically murder the villagers, beginning with the children. According to witnesses, or over the course of two days, the Kaibilis bludgeoned their victims and threw their bodies into the village as well. Others were shot or strangled. Many women and girls were raped. The settlement was then burned to the ground. Approximately 12 years after the Dos Aires massacre, uh, the, uh, an Argentine forensic anthropology team uh, went back to where the village was 
and exhumed the village's 40-foot well and recovered 162 skeletons, human skeletons, including 67 belonging to children under the age of 12. And the horror of that, of what they did, is the reason why these cases are so important and why the Human Rights Violators War Crime Center is so important. Because even though that happened in Guatemala in 1998, uh, Ortiz Morales entered the United States. He came here to live amongst all of us. Um, HSI opened an investigation into him and the investigation revealed um, violations of the Immigration and Nationality Act and misrepresentations of his participation in human rights abuses. Ortiz Morales pled guilty in 2017 in the U.S. District Court in Maryland, and they sentenced him to 11 and a half months um, incarceration for attempted un an unlawful procurement of his naturalization, and he was removed from the United States to Guatemala. Uh, Ortiz Morales is the fifth participant in the Dos Aires massacre living in the U.S. to be targeted by the U.S. government for enforcement action, including three Dos Aires massacre participants um, were removed from the U.S. to Guatemala to face war crimes charges. The first, Pedro Pimentel Rios, uh, he was sentenced in 2011 and was convicted for his role in the massacre and sentenced to 6,060 years in prison in Guatemala. Um, that's 6,060. Uh, the second, Santos Lopez Alonso was removed to Guatemala in 2016, and he was sentenced to 5,160 years in prison. The third, Gilberto Jordan was removed in 2020, and Jorge Sosa Orantes was removed also in 2020 after he served a 10-year federal prison, prison sentence in the United States for naturalization fraud. So obviously, um, you know, the United States isn't the only one who, who really care about justice in these cases. Um, you can see from those examples of those very, very long prison sentences, um, you know, that worldwide these cases are taken very seriously. Um, and our last case example uh, that Suzanne will share with you today came out of uh, the Rwandan genocide. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, and one final recent example um, is Beatrice Munyanezi. She was sentenced uh, to 10 years in federal prison for procuring her naturalization based on false statements to immigration officers about her role in the 1994 Rwandan genocide. Munyanezi was a member of the National Republican Movement for Democracy and Development, also known as the MRND, the political party in power during the genocide and its youth wing, the Interahamwe. The Interahamwe ran a militia that played a key role in, in the genocide. Witnesses testified that Munyanezi staffed a roadblock in Rwanda where she personally inspected IDs and decided who would pass and who would be selected for inevitable death. Some victims were assaulted at the roadblock. Others were led to a nearby forest where they were killed. In 1998, Munyanezi entered the United States after making false statements to obtain status. And in 2003, she became a naturalized US citizen. HSI agents spent over six years investigating Munyanezi, traveling to Rwanda nine times to identify and interview witnesses, 
And in 2010, HSI special agents arrested Munyanese for unlawful procurement of U.S. citizenship. Three years later, she was found guilty of two counts of unlawful procurement of citizenship or naturalization in the United States District Court in, in New Hampshire, based on false statements in her immigration forms about her membership in the MRND and the Interharamwe. The court sentenced Munyanese to 10 years in federal prison. And just this year, 2021, Munyanese was removed from the United States. And so, Natalia, those were just um, three examples of cases um, from conflicts, you know, in the 1940s, the 1980s and 1990s. Um, there are so many others during the last century in Bosnia, Armenia, Somalia, Ethiopia, just to name a few. Um, you know, and as we continue to investigate those cases from the 20th century, um, human rights violations still occur, you know, every day worldwide. Um, some, some of those conflicts of this century include uh, the Darfur genocide in Sudan, the use of barrel bombs in Syria, um, and torture and extrajudicial killings in the Gambia. Um, this century has already been plagued with uh, human rights violations. In the news, you can see the treatment of the Uyghur population, the Muslim minority in China, who are being placed in forced labor camps, and the Biden administration's uh, classification of it as a genocide. There's the Cameroonian Anglophone crisis, um, including the targeted killing and abuses towards civilians there. Uh, there's the conflict in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, targeting civilians with violence, extrajudicial killings, forced detentions, and gender-based violence to include mass rape. Uh, Myanmar, where the military is uh, allegedly targeting Muslim minorities, um, and you know, most recently in the news is Afghanistan. Uh, there's a long list of human rights violations occurring in this century to which the Human Rights Violators War Crime Center is, you know, committed to investigate. Thank you for those examples and for reminding us that, you know, it may seem sometimes that this was a long time ago or that this is somewhere else. But what you guys have really reminded us of is that it's never too distant. It's never too far. It's never too long ago. These are real human rights violations that have real victims who can't speak for themselves uh, because they are not around anymore. Or perhaps, you know, it, it, they may feel forgotten, but the Human Rights Center is making sure that those victims are not forgotten and that to this day we will fight for justice on their behalf. As we move into the second half of our show, we are going to be looking at some of the more modern examples, like Lisa was just mentioning, of how we see human rights violations today, specifically looking at combating crimes against women. We have to stop here for our next break, but we'll continue this discussion after a quick word from our sponsors. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. 
Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just entering the second half of our show with the Human Rights Violators and War Crime Center. Joining me is HSI Section Chief Lisa Frazier, Associate Legal Advisor Catherine Finley, and Program Manager Suzanne Priest. For the second half of our show, we are going to be looking specifically about how the center combats crimes against women, both at home and abroad. One of the principal ways that they do that is by combating female genital mutilation. Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit about what what FGM is and why it's a priority for the center? Absolutely, Natalia. Uh, Just so our audience is aware, we use female genital mutilation, FGM, as that is the way it is defined in U.S. law. However, when speaking with survivors and communities, they will likely prefer or refer to FGM as cutting or circumcision and a host of other ethnic terms such as katna, suno, the bond of society, etc. So FGM is a serious human rights abuse. It's culturally based, gender-specific violence, and when done to children, a serious form of child abuse. This harmful traditional practice negatively affects millions of women and girls around the world. We have a great quote from a survivor. It goes, FGM is child abuse, full stop. It's against women and girls' rights. Nobody should be opening my legs at the age of seven, holding me down, and cutting me just to control my sexuality. That is what FGM is, unquote. The World Health Organization defines FGM as any procedure involving partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical purposes. Now, there is no predominant age when FGM occurs, and the practice varies between countries, ethnic groups, even villages, to include the degree of severity, the age at which it's done, the rationale, or whether it's practiced at all. And depending on the community, FGM may be performed right after birth or just before marriage. But on average, the children are very young, usually between the ages of 2 and 15 years old. FGM normally happens uh, against a girl's will. Without her consent, she is not told what is happening to her or why it is being done. The girls are often forcibly restrained, sometimes with rope, sometimes tied to a dirt floor. Sometimes the cutters will be sitting on top of them. Family members or trusted members within the family holding them down, etc. The cutters may use salves and balms and cover their wounds with cloth and or bind their legs together, sometimes for weeks, so that they will actually heal. Generally speaking, though, the procedure is often done by a traditional circumciser or a cutter in the community, but we have found that there is no typical cutter. Uh, They vary in age, education, training. Uh, There are medical providers, nurses, midwives, and men who have been known to cut the children. 
I was really shocked when I read that according to UNICEF, more than 200 million girls and women alive today have undergone this form of cutting. Additionally, the Center for Disease Control estimates approximately 500,000 women and girls in the United States are either victims of FGM or at risk of being subjected to it. I had no idea how prevalent this issue was. And as you just described, Suzanne, the real just difficulty and grotesque nature of what these women undergo. I'm really glad that you guys are working to combat this. For people who may not exactly understand, it's not just the process itself that is so difficult and demeaning for women, but it's also the associated health effects of having undergone this type of cutting. Can you explain what those kind of longer term health effects are? Yeah, absolutely. FGM has no known health benefits and the survivors of FGM, mainly young girls, will endure medical and psychological complications throughout their entire life. Um, Short-term complications, um, as you can imagine, anytime you cut a body part, there will be bleeding. Um, In the case of FGM, bleeding can be minor to severe depending on where the cutting happens. For example, if the clitoral artery is cut or severed, the child may hemorrhage to the point of death right then and there. Um, And speaking with survivors, many of them know someone who has died from this procedure. Um, Infection, uh, a lot of times the cutters will actually share instruments among girls. Sometimes as many as they can cut with a a razor blade, they will cut um, and not clean or use any kind of sanitary um, environment at all. And so infection is really, really high. Broken bones, again, these children are trying to get away. They don't use anesthesia or antiseptics or any kind of pain control. Um, Urinary issues, again, when you cut your your private parts, your vagina, it it burns when when you urinate. And so a lot of the children will refuse to urinate and will hold it in. And those will lead into some really bad long-term complications. Urinary issues will continue. And sometimes those UTIs can get so bad, they create fistulas and, and cysts will form. Um, And sometimes those infections will lead to later on infertility, childbirth complications. And as we've heard from many um, survivors, painful sex later on in life. Um, But overall and resoundingly, the psychological complications, um, because in many cases, FGM is much like a sexual assault, where someone you trusted, a family member, takes them, lies to them, and cuts them without telling them why or what happened. And so we hear all the time that survivors of FGM really need that psychological assistance. Thank you, Suzanne. And before we wrap up this segment, Catherine, can you provide us with a little bit of an overview about where in the world we're seeing FGM? And given the prevalence of it domestically, what type of laws are in place in the United States to prohibit the practice? Sure thing. I mean, I think it's really important for listeners to know that FGM is a global issue. We have um, numerous data and research that has been done that that shows us that FGM is primarily concentrated in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, but also occurs in parts of Western Europe, North America, just like you said, Natalia, including the United States, Australia, New Zealand. So while many countries worldwide have laws out outlawing the practice, FGM's prevalence remains global in scope. 
And it truly occurs throughout communities, cultures, religions, and socioeconomic classes. Um, you brought up those statistics uh, about 200 million girls and women worldwide who've been subjected to FGM. Um, many listeners might find this surprising, but women and girls in the, U in the U.S. have had it done or are at risk. Um, the, the most recent data we have from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, from 2016, like you said, Natalia, estimates that over half a million women and girls here in our own country have had it done or are at risk. And so what I wanted to share in response to your question about the domestic laws here in the U.S. that prohibit this practice is really since 1996 is, um, since that year, it was a watershed year regarding recognition of the persecutory and criminal nature of FGM under immigration and criminal law. And in the asylum context, for example, in 1996, the Board of Immigration Appeals established for the first time ever that FGM is a harm severe enough to constitute persecution under immigration law, and that women and girls threatened with or have undergone FGM deserve the protection of the U.S. government because they are targeted on account of their particular social group. That same year, in the criminal context, a federal statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 116, was signed into law, and that criminalized the practice of FGM when done to minors here in the United States. Catherine, unfortunately, we do need to stop here for our final break. But when we get back, we will finish this conversation looking specifically at FGM and not only the work that you guys do to prosecute these criminals under the laws that you just mentioned, but also to prevent this practice from ever occurring. We'll be right back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show with the Human Rights Violators and War Crime Center of Homeland Security Investigations. Kate was just telling us a little bit about the history of FGM laws and the United States approach to it. Kate, I'll let you pick right back up on that topic. Thank you, Natalia. I was just mentioning that in 2013, so almost two decades after the 1996 uh, federal FGM statute was in place, the U.S. issued uh, a, an amendment to our federal FGM statute uh, through the Transport for Female Genital Mutilation, or subsection D of our federal statute, and that was signed into law. It was a result of a multi-year effort by congressional members and stakeholders to criminalize the act of transporting girls abroad for the purposes of subjecting them to FGM, a practice also known as vacation cutting. On January 13th, actually, of this year, our partners at the Department of Justice obtained an indictment in the case of a Texas woman for allegedly transporting a minor for FGM. And it's the first indictment under that subsection D of the FGM federal statute. I did want to highlight as well, on the state level, there are now 40 states 
which specifically prohibit FGM. Some of the state-based legislation includes important language on FGM outreach and education requirements, all very, very important things um, when we're talking about FGM and gender-based violence. And then an exciting update for this year on our federal FGM statute, 18 USC section 116, that was recently amended and it was signed into law earlier this, this year on January 5th through the Stop FGM Act, which passed the House and then unanimously passed through the Senate. Now the federal, the amended federal statute does a few things. It increases the criminal penalties for performing FGM on a minor. Uh, it expands the definition of FGM to include other procedures that are harmful to the external female genitalia. And a really important point for any of our interagency partners listening, the amended law requires an annual report from the AG in consultation with DHS Department of State, Department of Health and Human Services, and the Department of Education concerning the protections available and actions taken to protect women and girls from FGM, as well as the actions taken by federal agencies to educate and assist communities about FGM. So all very important things for our interagency work uh, in combating this practice. Uh, I will just make a quick note that the new FGM law will not be applied retroactively including because the U.S. Constitution prohibits ex post facto laws. The new law prohibits FGM committed in the U.S. when it occurs after the law's enactment, which is January 5th, 2021, and when it occurs in the circumstances described in the new law. But vacation cutting or taking a girl outside the United States for the purposes of FGM can be prosecuted as long as it occurred after the enactment of the prior FGM law, that subsection D, which was in 2013. Wow, it's so incredible and uplifting to hear that our government, Congress, federal agencies are really able to come together and recognize this issue and its impact. It is not just, you know, uh, our government coming together. There is a lot of partnership across the Human Rights Center um, in the between federal law enforcement agencies, uh, nonprofits, other groups to really prevent uh, this practice. Suzanne, can you talk to us a little bit about Operation Limelight USA and some of the other collaborative work to prevent FGM? Yeah, absolutely, Natalia. Uh, HSI, we, we've created this anti-FGM program, and it's basically a four-pillar program. And it's based on partnership, first and foremost, education, prevention, and lastly, prosecution. Because with FGM, partnership is imperative. We know we cannot prosecute our way out of the FGM issue affecting so many children. And we work very closely with our FBI International Human Rights Unit, uh, the Department of Justice, Human Rights and Special Prosecution, other federal authorities, Customs and Border Protection, state and local agencies, interagency partners uh, throughout the government, a lot of survivors and national, um, excuse me, uh, nonprofit organizations or non-government organizations. Um, as, as you can imagine, FGM cases um, can be quite complex and every case will be unique in, in many, many ways. So we have found that overall education of investigators on the basics of FGM, the cultural sensitivities, the family ties, and the secrecy of the act are instrumental to understanding the issue and dealing with survivors and investigating 
uh, these kinds of cases. We also have a cadre of uh, victim assistance specialists and forensic interview specialists who are dedicated to helping the victims of FGM share their stories. And again, we work closely with the Customs and Border Protection to detect travel of any at-risk child, and they will assist us with interviews. And, and basically, we developed uh, the outreach program, the Operation Limelight that you talked about, this Operation Limelight USA. And, and what Limelight is, is HSI's effort, it's an overt operation. It's led by HSI special agents and done at international airports in coordination with, again, FBI, CBP, state and locals, airport police. But we also bring in survivors. We bring in the NGOs. We bring in any others um, that will come and assist us to highlight the subject of FGM, educate the travelers, identify potential uh, girls who might be at risk of vacation cutting that, take, that Kate spoke about, and encourage public support. And basically, we speak to passengers and give out flyers with information on how to report if there's a girl at risk. And for survivors, uh, there's a list of resources on the back as well. And limelight is typically done around the school holidays or vacations like spring break and summer break. Wow. Yeah, I was reading on your website that since 2017, you've conducted outreach operations at 18 airports and have engaged over 4,000 passengers on 168 flights. It, there really is, it is just a testament to your hard work that it's not just prosecuting, but it's also prevention. It's it's not just, you know, putting the people doing the cutting in jail, but it's making sure the victims have the assistance, uh, care, and really recovery that they need, um, especially thinking about all of the long-term psychological impacts of FGM that Suzanne discussed earlier. Another big international effort, a collaborative partnership to try to prevent this practice is International Day of Zero Tolerance. Catherine, can you tell us a bit more about that? Definitely. So the International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation is February 6th every year. And this day truly serves as an opportunity to remember the victims who have suffered from FGM, uh, including many and women and girls who have died or suffered lifelong health complications from the practice. The day also renews a global commitment to the health and well-being of all women, girls, and communities by eliminating the practice. With our interagency and international partners, the Human Rights Violator and War Crime Center often issues joint statements and conducts outreach and educational efforts to increase public awareness of the dangers of FGM. In the past, for example, the centers partnered with uh, the UK's Metropolitan Police Force and Border Force to recognize the International Day of Zero Tolerance for FGM. Uh, last year, we put together a 90-minute webinar to audience members from the US interagency, the UK, Sweden, Ireland, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And this upcoming year, the center and our UK law enforcement partners are planning to conduct joint Operation Limelights around February 6, 2022, to continue raising awareness of this harmful practice against women and girls. So truly a team effort, truly uh, that partnership piece that Suzanne mentioned is really, really driving the work that the center is, is doing on this front. 
Wow, it's it's really great to hear that kind of international collaboration around this issue. But looking locally, uh, Suzanne, I know you've spoken about kind of the ways that you guys really get involved in local communities, uh, particularly communities that could be at risk for this practice. Can you speak to that kind of localized effort? Yeah, absolutely. You know, since 2017 is when we really took on this program. Uh, we have conducted quite a few community outreach and training events through our, you know, community relations officers who are embedded within, you know, the communities around the country. Um, and those folks will actually organize events for us. Um, we invite anyone who has a vested interest in FGM and protecting those most at risk to learn about FGM and encourage them to speak up if they suspect a child is in imminent danger, especially. Um, but a lot of times when we go out to these communities, we realize that there aren't very many working this specific issue, um, FGM, but we find that there's a lot of folks who are working other issues related to that, like human trafficking, for example. And so a lot of times we'll end up with uh, an audience full of people who work specifically on human trafficking, but that might know a lot of the other folks within the community who might benefit from this kind of information. And so they'll end up sharing it later on. Um, and so <clears throat> we don't turn anyone away. If you're willing to come listen to us, we, you know, we'll be there talking about it. Um, That's incredible. So, yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, and I, you know, one of our things is that, you know, we really foster these relationships with the NGOs because they are the community. They're the ones that are going to hear who's at risk and, um, and who we can, you know, help the most. And so they're dedicated to these issues. And uh, we really try to keep an open and safe dialogue with them to help protect those kids who are at risk and provide assistance to, to the survivors whenever possible. Suzanne, if someone has information about an individual who is suspected of assisting in this crime or a victim, what should they do? Well, if anyone should need more information or report a crime, you can always reach out to the Human Rights Violators tip line. Uh, we have an email. It's hrv.ice at dhs.ice.gov or the ICE tip line, which is at 8 6-6-3-4-7-2-4-2-3. Um, there's also the FBI tip line, which you can also reach out to at 1-800-CALL-FBI, or you can complete their online uh, tip form at fbi.gov. Um, Great. We will include that information in the description for this, for this show as well. I want to thank... Suzanne, Lisa, and Catherine for joining me today and for all your hard work with the Human Rights Violators and War Crime Center, hearing about, you know, from combating and removing Nazis to educating the public on FGM today. It is such incredible and important work. And for really the victims of these crimes, the, uh, the impact cannot be stated. Thank you guys for joining me and thank everyone for listening to today's show. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.